Ahoy, and welcome to the second episode ever of Life on the Brink, the podcast about threatened species and the amazing people that work to protect them. Alex is pretty excited. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Was it the ahoy? <laughs> you said threatened species. So, so pumped. You're like, woohoo. Uh, so we thought to ourselves, how are we going to follow up our first episode after someone as cool as Daniela? And then we managed to get a hold of Alex. Not this Alex, a different Alex. And I was actually really lucky because I got to live with this guy for a while while he wrote up his PhD. He specializes in researching, filming, and conserving lions, which are classified as vulnerable to extinction. Their numbers are on the decline, mainly due to preemptive and retaliatory killings by people protecting human lives or the lives of their livestock, and to a lower extent, habitat loss and prey depletion. Alex joined us for this chat in a hotel in Luxor, Egypt, on his way between Uganda and Europe to get vaccinated for his postdoc in China. And we can't stress enough how much of an effort he put into this. Like the Wi-Fi was shocking. He dropped out so many times and he still just kept rejoining and made it through the interview with us. He's a big cat biologist. He's worked with leopards, mountain lions, most recently tree climbing lions, uh, and is also a Nat Geo cameraman who made a documentary on the tree climbing lines of Uganda. There was so much we wanted to ask him about, about the lion research, the filmmaking, about how he got into big cat conservation, because those are dream jobs material. What I wasn't expecting was just how much advice he was happy to give. So get ready to hear about how he got started in conservation with a sandwich, how he saved a lioness with a stinky mattress, and how lions may be in much worse trouble than we think. So without further ado, the man with a mane to match the lions, Dr. Alexander Brakowski. He's going to love how much we mention his hair. Just a quick warning, there's a bit of swearing in this episode, so heads up. You've worked with so many like different types of big cats. What made you focus in particular on lions? I only started I only started doing lions like 2017 or 18. Like I uh, I was always doing leopards before that. And uh, lions was just it just happened sort of by virtue. I wanted to move more into lions because I thought full study animal. It's always great to kind of diversify your experience. And uh, yeah, I just got to work on a population of tree climbing lions because of the fact that I my, my one of my PhD co-supervisors, Arjun Kapalaswamy, was working on a big. He was starting to get more into lions because of a connection in Kenya, and he was testing more, you know, these ideas about you know how do we count lions accurately. And uh, and I said, you know, could you co-supervise me for my PhD? You know, could we could we do something together? And then we basically just got sort of talking about applying these new, what they call spatially explicit um, search encounter techniques for lions, which are quite recent. They're still, you know, the first one was sort of done in, when did that one of mountain lions come out? I think it came out in like 2012, but it's a cool way of counting lions because you can essentially just drive around and take pictures of lions' faces and use whisker spots. Um, but that was the sort of motivation, like just linking up with the right people. Is conservation something that you've always seen yourself wanting to get into? Was there a moment that you could sort of identify as where that started? Yeah, I think for me it was uh, volunteering 
at the local zoo in my hometown at the Johannesburg Zoo when I was like 16. Oh, no, wait, how old was I? 13, I think. I got expelled from school for throwing a sandwich at my math teacher. And I uh, subsequently, yeah, they just kicked me out of school. I had no place to go. So I just, like, while my parents are trying to find me a school that would take me, like, I worked as a volunteer, like, cutting cabbages for the chimpanzees at the uh, Johannesburg Zoo. Yeah, and I think that, that was sort of the spark, if you will, that kind of got me into it. Then I got a, I got another opportunity in – I worked on a small game reserve in the Kruger National Park, sort of broader area called Chikudu Game Lodge, uh, as a, again, as a volunteer. And, again, that sort of solidified sort of the idea that I wanted to get into wildlife. Um, what was your first job? Like, I'm sure did – you, did you just start straight into conservation or – I mean, I mean, I, just, I volunteered at like the, the Joburg Zoo. I worked at a couple of pet shops. And then like my first like paid job was working for a, an NGO in South Africa called the Landmark Foundation. And I, I think I was 20 or 21. And I think I at that point was getting like $600 a month to basically set up leopard cages and deliver leopard cages all over the Cape Mountains of South Africa, basically camera trap, catch leopards, uh, and basically radio track them in several mountain ranges across the southern sort of um, southern Cape of South Africa. So, um, but uh, I was quite lucky um, in some ways. The opportunities in conservation these days have definitely, there's just so few of them. It's, it's conservation is like, it's more needed than ever, but in terms of being able to make a, like a living out of it, it's just becoming increasingly difficult by the day. So that's why you're advising me against starting up a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. yeah, I mean, look, if you absolutely have to do it and you have to sort of get your hands into scientific research and you're interested in sort of hypothesis-driven science and asking interesting questions about animals or biology or whatever, I'd say, you know, go for it. But doing a PhD without having an explicit understanding of why you're doing it, I very much uh, warn against it. Mm. And then, I mean, you, you said the PhD games changed a lot, but you do have doctor in front of your name. How did that come about? Uh, I mean, I just, I always, you see, the thing is that the, my situation was a little bit different. I always wanted to do kind of research. Mm. I always, uh, you know, since I was a undergrad, you know, I, I was always doing research on leopards around my university campus. When I was, yes, yeah, so I started like collecting leopard droppings when I was like 2021, 20, like around my university, like analyzing in the school holidays and um, setting up camera traps, like for leopards and stuff, you know, at a very young age. And like, all I wanted to do, I had a very strong obsession with science and like trying to be a wildlife biologist. I liked the idea of asking, you know, how many leopards are there? What do they eat? You know, what is their relationship with farmers? I was always interested in those kinds of things. So it was always an obsession to do that. Um, but that being said, I think it does require some thinking um, as to, the reasoning as to why you are doing that. I mean, it's sad, eh, guys. It's like we're just science is changing so much these days. Even wildlife ecology and biology has just become such a desk-based uh, feel. Is that part of what drove you into going into film and like exploring sort of uh, 
more photography and film-based stuff? Yeah, I guess the field, the, the kind of filming side of things came, uh, you know, I came into contact with a guy called Steve Winter in 2014. I met him literally for 10 days. I guided him in 2012 on a leopard project that I was working on. Drove him around and could have kept in touch. And and then I just got to do an apprenticeship with him in 2014, which was, uh, you know, by today's standards, a, you know, by any standards, a major deal to be able to assist a photographer of his caliber for, you know, arguably the, biggest and leading uh, wildlife magazines on the planet. Okay, Alex, you follow photography stuff a bit. Apprenticeship with Steve Winter, how big of a deal is it really? I would probably trade my left arm for it. <laughs> <laughs> Not the right one because you need that for the photos. Exactly. <laughs> but no, yeah, you'd be uh, you'd be stoked. He does some really cool stuff. I like pretty much everything to do with big cats in that geo is mostly Steve Winter. Um, mountain lions, leopards, normal lions, just everything. <laughs> oh, also, he is well worth looking up to see what he looks like out in the field because he sometimes wears this bandana thing around his head and it kind of looks hilarious. <laughs> so check him out, Steve Winter. <laughs> Yeah, and then definitely the enjoyment side of things. You know, it's a lot of fun taking pictures of wildlife and wildcats, and um, yeah, I think I think, and I've been very privileged in in, in the sense of straddling those two industries. Um, you know, for the last sort of five years of my life, it's just, it's just like film in wildlife has just become so goddamn good. It's like, man, like the the equipment that the guys are using these days, it's like, you know, it's, it's definitely not the Derek and Beverly Jubez in like 1985 doing eternal enemies, you know, with a long lens and a, and a tripod. This is more like now a Cineflex and like, uh, these Kessler cranes and, uh, you know, these big tracking shots and drones. And it's just like, it's ridiculous. You know, it's just the game in the last decade has just moved exponentially in terms of, how we are forming animals um yeah so yeah what was that documentary you just mentioned was it eternal enemies eternal enemies do you want to look it up what is it yeah okay. so eternal enemies lions and hyenas it aired in 1992 and the director of the original and only lion king cited the documentary as one of the inspirations for the film how have we not seen this thing? I have no idea. And what was the camera stuff? Cineflex are super stabilized cameras. And the... Kessler cranes. And get yeah, just high. imagine train tracks, but for a camera. Train <laughs> tracks for a camera. Or like the, the, the start of a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, literally. But you can move it around so it goes up, down, side, side. Um, from a lifestyle perspective, like you're talking about how you're, the research is incredibly hard to, to make an impact in now uh, and the filmmaking is incredibly hard to be seen in now and be heard in now. You've chosen to both sort of as your, as your professions in life and your passions in life. Is, is there, I mean, what's it like trying to balance both of those things at the same time and trying to make an impact in both of those fields? Yeah, it's hard. It's obviously very hard. It's it's hard, man. It's just fucking, it is hard. It is like, it is, it is incredibly difficult. Um, like, I, I guess the thing that like, to me is the, the thing that I always struggle with is, is like finding measures of impact. And like, how do you know if you're making an impact? 
you know, I think, I think in my view with, with wildlife conservation and wildlife biology and science is that, and even in filmmaking is that, look, there's, there's sort of one or two things the way that I view it is that like you as a human being should do whatever you want to do. And, and if you find enjoyment in that thing, then I think that that is the most incredible thing that you can get from God or from the universe or whatever it is, you know, I think just finding a, a passion and a, and a, like a, you know, a knowledge of your craft is like the coolest thing that you can do. One thing that I struggled with is, is finding uh, the satisfaction and motivation to know that like the work that I'm doing, whatever it is, if it's the science or if it's the film, does that have like a meaningful, tangible impact, most importantly on the ground and to the species that I'm supposedly interested in? You know, making films is cool, man. It's great. Cool. You got a film on Disney. You got a film on that year. Like, awesome, man. All those lions fucking dead at the end of the day. That's my game. Like, that's the thing that I'm interested in the most. Like, are those lions going to be around in the next five years? Did that film actually push the mantle in terms of doing something for them? And the same with the science. So far, which which do you think you've seen the most tangible impact, impact from? <sighs> To be very honest, I, I don't, I don't really, I can't really say that I have had that much. I would say that, you know, I had a, I had a good paper come out in 2012, the sustainable hunting of African leopards, where we basically devised a way so that trophy hunters could shoot leopards that were of a certain age. Um, because if you shoot young animals, uh, you know that they are going to decline as a, as a population uh, above a certain age that's fine. The population doesn't decline. And basically um, we came up with ways morphologically in which you could identify um, uh, if it's a male or female and how old that animal is. So I'd say those are the kinds of papers uh, that I'm definitely the most proud of because they actually help shape policy in some, uh, some way. I think the, the stuff we've done on counting lions is definitely at least uh, activated some discussion in, in, in not necessarily policy circles, but definitely among scientists. Uh, that that so those are the kinds of papers, or those are the kinds of pieces of science that I uh, am definitely the kind of most proud of. But yeah, I struggle with it every day. I don't think I am currently making much of a difference at all. I just think that it's uh, it's a constant uphill battle to try and have impact on the ground. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to sort of jump back to what we were talking about before and that lions are one of the most well-known species on the planet. But I think for a lot of people, they don't realize that they are actually even threatened for a lot of people. I think they assume they're doing all right. I mean, do you, do you, um, do you find that's a commonplace thing that, that, that awareness about lions and the threats to them isn't nearly as widespread as the, the sort of awareness of lions generally is? It, it's a, it's an important question, Gabriel. And it's actually interesting that you mention it because Frank Cochon, who's a really, really good French scientist, um, him and his team, I think he's based in Paris, if I'm not mistaken, but always interesting. Always, he's always asking very interesting questions um, around sort of human perceptions towards animals um, and one of the things that he sort of came up with in 2018 was um, this concept that he coined the um, paradoxical extinction of um, the Earth's most charismatic animals. 
And um, what paradoxical extinction is, is that the high incidence of these, you know, species that we've come to love and that have become famous for all the reasons of having big teeth, being fierce, being rare. Um, the fact that so many companies are using them in their marketing and their branding, and because of the fact that we walk around and see a bear or a tiger or a lion on a street pole every day, paradoxically, people actually think that those animals are safe and they're doing fine when actually they're doing pretty badly in the wild. But basically, the fact that you walk down a street in Paris and see 35 lions in the form of a poster or in the form of a line on your beer, the constant bombardment potentially paints a false picture of how we feel about them in terms of their conservation status. So to answer your question, I think you would be surprised as to how few people know to the true status of these charismatic species, including lions. Yeah. I mean, you're also talking that the, the science on, on the numbers of them is also you know, a bit ambiguous as well. I mean, you've done some research of your, of your own that models line numbers, but can you talk about some of the issues that, that were there before that? So with African lions, uh, the biggest problems, there are some pretty big assumptions that we are making as scientists when we count them. We, we are often doing a lot of what we call index counting or, or, or sign counting. We are never counting the animal directly. So we are either counting its tracks, we are either counting it by um, not identifying it individually. So we just literally like they will appear around our vehicle if we pull them in and then we'll count one, two, three, four, five, go to another area, call them again, you know, using buffalo calls or uh, the calls of hyenas. Lions will run in, we'll call them again. And then we make some pretty gutsy mathematical assumptions around uh, how many animals are found more broadly in an area. But the problem a lot of the time with counting the signs of lions or um, not counting them individually uh, is that you get what is called uh, in, in biological sciences a, a over-dispersion parameter. So basically, um, the relationship between whatever sign you're counting, whether it's tracks or droppings, that doesn't usually reflect pretty well as to how many lions really have in an area. Because the way that we're counting lions generally, uh, and the way that we have counted them over the last 25 years is just complete crocker dog crap. Like, it's horrific how poorly we, we, we have done uh, the science on figuring out how many how many of the most like charismatic animal on planet earth, arguably next to tigers and whales and gorillas and chimps, uh, we don't really know how many they are. And it's like, it's not on. It's just, it's just in my view, as a scientific group of people working on these species, we owe it to them to have good numbers on them. Numbers really do govern a lot of the management decisions that we make around the species, the donation decisions that we make as donors, uh, because if we do not track their populations properly, we certainly cannot tell our donors that they are doing better. And uh, we cannot say that we're saving lions. There's a pretty big controversy going on at the moment that, again, not many people know about. The Indian government has hit the uh, target that they were going for about 10 years ago. So we ended up going down a bit of a tangent here about the counts of tigers in India and how the tigers there have been heralded as a bit of a success story. 
but how there's been a lot of speculation more recently about the accuracy of these counts. These population estimates can be can be quite inaccurate because they use signs of presence rather than actually visibly counting the animals. And by signs of presence, I mean poop and tracks. <laughs> and then there was some further research into well, where are the animals actually ending up if there are more of them, which seems to question that there is any ecological room for more, as Alex put it. And all this stuff is very suspect because the Indian government hasn't actually allowed any independent scientific research to be done to validate their findings. With these counts, what's the current estimate population of lions? Like how many are actually left in Africa? I think the number has been kind of floated... There's something like 18 to 30,000 individuals, um, give or take a few hundred on either side of that. But that's the range. Um, I think the figure that's sort of widely floated is something like 25,000 lions in Africa, which again, you know, the scientific community seems to be obsessed with this idea of figuring out how many of everything we have. So there's X number of lions left in Africa or there's X number of jaguars left in South America, you know, which is just like fundamentally, in my opinion, like just a fucking dumb statistic. Like, tell me what the utility, what, what is the real world value of having a number of 18 or 30,000 lions in Africa? How does that help us move the conservation of these animals uh, at the local landscape scale? What we should be doing is figuring out how the population is doing from year X to year Y to year Z. Now, you don't have to do it annually. You can do it biannually or even every three years. But the cool thing is because you're catching the same individuals, you can actually figure out like birth, death, immigration, immigration which are your critical sort of what you call your life history parameters of a population. So basically like are cats coming in, are cats leaving, are they dying, are they getting bored? And it gives you a, an idea more broadly of where that population is stable. Those are the kinds of metrics at the landscape level that you want. People are interested in saying there's 40,000 lines or 100,000 lines left, you know, because it's just, it's one of those CNN or Nat Geo kind of statistics. It's got no real-world utility for any conservation manager or anti-poaching unit on the ground. So you think it'd be much better to measure just trends, over, like overall trends of how like local populations are doing? Yeah, trends. But again, like when I say trends, I, I, what I don't mean, what I certainly don't mean by trend is we counted 10 years ago, we found there was 300 lions with some absurd confidence interval. What I mean by con- confidence interval is obviously a measurement of error. So it's 100 lions, but it could be as little as 50. It could be as, as high as 300. So that's widely accepted in science. But a lot of the problem with a lot of the way that we currently count lines with track counts and with call-up surveys is that those levels of error are quite wide. Moreover, it's just a number. You don't know certain individuals. So you don't know it's like Jacob, Julia, Mashaba, Mabale. I don't know, whatever those lines are in an area. So you don't know how they're doing over time. So what I mean by trend is it's not 10 years ago there was 300 lines in like five years we again did a crappy count and there's 185 and then like you just draw a line between two. What I mean is like a more robust robust uh, count. So there's a really good bit of science. Like in my view, the best big cat science that's ever been done is by um, a team of scientists from India called the Wildlife Conservation Society India Program. Um, about a decade and a half, two decades ago, it was arguably the best big cat program in the whole world in terms of the scientific integrity, transparency, attention to detail. That was the Big Cat project in my view and I think in the view of a lot of other Big Cat scientists because of the fact that 
not only did they revolutionize how they counted these things, but also how they were consistent in the counts and what they could actually tell you in detail on how populations of tigers in different sites around India were doing. Um, so there was a, and the guy who really changed the game was a guy called Ulas Karen. He's about seven, I think he's about 72 now, but he's like the, he's the modern, in my view, he's like the modern forefather of big cat science. Congratulations. You made it through the data science section of the podcast. We know that was a huge amount of numbers talk and uh, we really wanted to make up for it. So Alex sent us this video and it's basically the cutest thing ever. It's like lion cubs playing around and suckling with their mum. We might jump into a bit of a different different question. Um, is there just like one day working with lions that was the best or was just is super memorable to you? So um, the, pr- the problem with big cats generally is that they do a lot of sleeping. That's the funny part of it. So if you're tracking or uh, you know, filming them, you know, they can spend easily 10 hours of a day sleeping. So I'd say the most exciting times when you're actually working with big cats is when you're either catching and collaring them or the few moments when they're either hunting or fighting or mating. Those are usually the times when you get the most um, action, if you will. In terms of my own personal best experiences, I've probably got three. Once when I nearly got uh, absolutely mauled by a young male leopard that was about 14, 15 months of age. So with Tristan Dickerson, when we had to relocate a leopard that was caught between two fences, that's probably number one. Number two, nearly getting fucking eaten alive by a pride of lions in Ishasha when they like literally hunted our Suzuki Jiminy in 2017. That's probably number two. And number three was probably uh, having a collaring a female lioness in the Kaseni area, in the Chambura area in Uganda and being on top of a, you know, 250-pound lioness and thinking she was asleep, collaring her and then within about three minutes figuring out she wasn't asleep and having her wake up with me on top of her. That was probably my top three big cat experiences. Um, so yeah. <laughs> your best experiences are you almost getting eaten. <laughs> Yeah, always. Like, you know, those are the ones that are like, yeah, I don't know why. It's just, yeah, there's something like pretty crazy about a big, yeah, just capturing big cats and collaring them and all that. It's always very exciting, very rewarding, like kind of getting up close and personal with your um, study animals. And I don't mean that in an egocentric way. I think it's just like more because you can really understand their power by like physically putting a collar on an animal that weighs 350, 400 pounds and like mm. just seeing how big their teeth are and kind of just just even moving an animal, just kind of seeing how much power and muscle and teeth and everything is, you know, you kind of see, you know, you're seeing two, two million years of evolution in front of you. And yeah, it's, it's really kind of gratifying just being that close to them. Can, can we talk uh, for a few questions about the doco? Um, because it is something that probably a lot of people know you for and something that probably has had a big impact of the work you've done. Um, we just did another one. We did a, we did a sequel in February. Yeah. It's called Return to Uganda, which is basically building on basically what's happened to a lot of those lion characters since 2018. So that I think comes out on Big Cat Week in the next few months. So um, if anybody wants to kind of see what happened to Jacob and the rest of the lions, tune into that. 
there's some good news in there, some bad news, you know, it's, uh, yeah, but that, that's something that people should, um, if they want to see more about lines in Uganda, tree climbing lines, then, uh, that's the one to watch. And that comes out quite soon, I think. So there's a question we're about to ask Alex and it comes from the documentary. So if you haven't seen it, there's this scene where they're trying to sort of capture this injured lion that's up in a tree so that the vet can sort of check and operate on it and make sure it doesn't die. And they dart this lion. And every time they've done this in the past, the lion comes down out of the tree because it's not feeling too well. But in this case, the injured lion stays up. How, how high like two stories in the air and just sits there completely paralyzed with the dart and then starts slipping and Alex has to and his team have to spring into action to try and not let this thing fall two stories to the ground I've uh I've got to ask because there's a part in the uh in the documentary where you dart this lion and you've got to try and catch it on this mattress that's fallen out of a tree were you absolutely shitting yourself when it fell yeah, that was that was pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I was literally like a split second decision because I saw her falling and I was like, nah, fuck this. I'm going to get the Land Rover. So I got it, parked it under the tree and literally pulled the mattress out of my uh, rooftop tent. And literally I did all of that within about 45 seconds. It was just luck, man. It was just like one of those things where I thought, oh, well, what's the way that we can do this? And it just happened that we had this car with this elongated, you know, kind of like a roof awning. And I happened to have a mattress in my rooftop tent and that just like the stars aligned. But I mean, it could have easily gone another way where we try to physically try to catch her. And then she just fucking could have killed us because it's like, you can't catch 250 pounds. It's like, if, if that had, you know, if that had hit, landed on me, I would have been dead. Yeah. So was that the mattress you'd been sleeping on as well? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's amazing. I don't think I've, I don't think I've washed that mattress since. I think I've still, still got it. So sad, you know, I think she passed away like two, three weeks after that, you know, because she just couldn't keep up with the pride. Mm. With the documentary, the, the pride you're following, they, uh, they end up getting poisoned and it's, it's obviously like very rough on you. How, how do you deal with that when you get so close to these animals and you've been following them for such a long time and then something like that happens? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the thing that you got to kind of, understand and kind of today's political climate is you know and i don't really know yet as to what my viewpoint on this is you know fundamentally i believe that you know the the animals and the the science and the conservation um you know should be spearheaded by the local people and scientists that that you know are, are um the nationals of a country you know so whether that's indians or ugandans or uh, zimbabweans you know, I, I believe that we should always push um, to empower those people to do the best science and conservation that they can. And in that way, you know, when people ask me, like, how did how did the poisoning of the lions in Uganda affect me? Well, you know, obviously it's sad, but, you know, I am there merely as a kind of a, a vessel to document and to to do my best to kind of uplift and to try and support local conservation efforts. Um, so, you know, as much as it was sad, um, you know, you also got to kind of look at it in in the context of you know species conservation. Are lions still in that area? Yes, they are. Are they still suffering and are they still probably declining? Yes, they are. But I think that's you know rather than focusing on certain individuals, I think it's important for us to make sure that the lions of Uganda and the lions of Kaseni and the lions of Queen Elizabeth 
are the ones that are really the focus. And then obviously the associated communities and people that are living alongside them. Yeah, I mean, you also you talk about how it's the focus is also not just on the loss of the individuals, but the loss of the lines overall. In the documentary, you talk about these tree climbing lines as sort of having their own culture. Um, mm. What do you why did why do you call it a culture there, and and how is that culture going at the moment? Yeah, so culturally, what I mean by culture is uh, there's definitely a behavior there. You know, I've had like I mean by had a little Facebook to and fro with Hans Bauer, who's a lion biologist who's done a lot of work in West Africa and parts of East Africa. And he was a bit of a smart ass and said, yeah, lions climb everywhere. it's like, yeah, do they, do they really? Yeah, sure they do. But, uh, not every individual in an entire population climbs a lion every single day of the year. Do they now? So that's what I mean by that is that there's only a handful of populations. There's a population in the Serengeti, Lake Manyara, and um, yeah, you get individual prides in Singita in South Africa. You might get a couple of prides in uh, in, in you know that, that Singita NGO complex in in, in Serengeti that, um, that 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 climb trees. But what I mean by culture is that this is a behaviour that's passed in the matrilineal line. So mothers, daughters, aunts, um, sisters, they are passing it down to their cubs, and. Um, you know, that's a behavior that is literally featured by every single lion in the population. So that's what I mean. That's what I mean by culture is that there's very few places in Africa where lions regularly climb trees um, and every single individual does it or nearly every single individual does it. Alex was kind enough to actually send us videos of the first time he managed to capture this culture on camera with young lions. And so we took the audio from it and yeah. So this is the sound of young lions being taught the culture of climbing trees for the very first time and Alex reacting to that. And I really want to emphasize he was within three meters of a full grown lion. So we've been waiting all week for these guys to climb and they finally did it. They did it today. And I did it yesterday morning, and now we've got them coming down from the tree. So of all the places in the world where lions climb trees, there's only two. And that's here in the Queen Elizabeth National Park and in Lake Manyara. And now we've got some of the first footage ever of these little dudes, not even two months old, climbing a big euphorbia tree. So there's mom, and she's just hanging right above my head. She's literally about three meters away from me and just to the left in those branches are two teeny weeny little cubs. Look at them over there. One little fluff ball there and another little fluff ball up there. That's what I mean by culture. And, um, you know, you, 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 you get other cultural, you know, behaviors in big cats. So full henschel, I know in Gabon, or um, in, in Lope National Park, he found, uh, you know, that there was uh, some habitual pangolin killers. Uh, Lawrence Swanepoel found that some leopards in South Africa in the Limpopo are really good at killing baboons above and beyond what they should be in relation to the population. So, you know, you know, and again, and again like if the culture, if the, if the behavior of tree climbing is something that is marketed as a ecotourism thing, it's 
more in the interest of whoever the governing body is in an area to make sure that that behavior continues. You know, it's, it's, you know, it'd be the equivalent of saying, you know, I don't know that there's, you know, a population of lions that, um, you know, I don't know, bathe in some salt pool somewhere, you know, it's, and if that's your ecotourism ploy, then, then I think it's all the more important that we conserve these animals. Um, yeah. So that's what I mean by culture in a very long 90 second answer. You touched on this a little bit before, just talking about the local communities that actually interact with these lions. It, it, it's it's the kind of thing where you can't really blame poachers for wiping out or like driving down their numbers because they're just trying to provide for their families and for themselves. But uh, are there any kind of initiatives that are in place or that are being trialed to sort of prevent this? A lot of the time, it is um, poor people that are struggling to eke out an existence. Okay, there's between 750 and a billion poor livestock keepers globally. That unfortunately happens to occur in a lot of the places where lions, spotted hyenas, tigers, um, mountain lions, jaguars occur. That, that, that places a number of different sort of sustainability goals in direct odds with each other. You know, we're trying to reduce zero, you know, we're trying to reduce hunger. We're trying to increase the education and sort of living standards of people. And then we have these bloody lions and mountain lions that are running around eating livestock. But then at the same time, you've got an authority, a governing authority or tourism authority, or, you know, there's stakeholders that are interested in saving those things or keeping them alive because they bring in revenue. So you've essentially got these different interests, if you want, being able to eat, being able to keep livestock and to be able to do tourism. So you have those things literally coming to a major clash. But, but in order to answer your question, yes, there are a lot of different strategies being trialed, uh, you know, compensating people for losing their cows. There are payment for present schemes that have been trialed in Tanzania, basically where people will pay you if a lion rocks up on your community land. So there's a whole bunch of different financial mechanisms. There's also like, you know, helping people keep livestock safely. So basically building predator-proof bomas. Um, ironically enough, though, so for instance, in Queen Elizabeth, a lot of the cows that actually live in that national park actually don't belong to the people in that park. They belong to wealthy cattle keepers in Kampala. And there, that's where I'm like, well, what the hell are we doing? You know, well, why, why, why is that okay? You know, I think it's, I think it's important to figure out fundamentally who, who those cows belong to. There's obviously also a lot of cultural sensitivities around these conflict situations that I think also need to be uh, considered. Um, but it is, you know, there's, there's a lot being done, but, but it's all, it's all context dependent. I, um, I don't, I don't mean to sort of cut off, but, uh, just to switch to a bit of a lighter note, we, we, we threw up a bit of a post on our Instagram page to ask anybody that was listening, had any questions they wanted to get from you. Um, and so uh, Karen wanted to know uh, if you had any tips on how to gain the trust of locals when you're starting field work and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's like, you know, you, I mean, one of the, one of the best ways to, to establish any kind of, uh, trust is to kind of spend time in the field. I think that's one of the main things. I think if you can join on to an existing project, that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, be as sensitive as possible. Yeah, I think I think those are the the, the main things that I would say. Um, you know, this whole thing with helicopter science is also it's such an interesting thing. You know, it's like there's just such a push now for like this pushback against foreign researchers coming into areas. 
I, I think a lot of I think a lot of it comes uh-huh. from like if we were you know if someone's doing research on beetles or bloody praying mantises, no one's going to have a problem. If you want to do a continent-wide survey of praying mantises, no one's going to stand in your way. But it's just because it's like it's a, it's an animal that's got big teeth and it's got political ramifications and it draws in a lot of money. You know, I, I just it seems that mm-hmm. you have to as a as a scientist with a foreign name have to apologize for everything, and I just think that. I just think it's wrong, man. And I think we are fundamentally going down a very dark path um, by just literally ostracizing every foreign scientist. Look, I, I, we'll stick down the dark path then with another another question from our audience because um, Peter asked, um, with so much emphasis on ecotourism and the politics of, of lions and big cats in general, how many big cats out in the world and African lions in particular, can you still truly call wild these days? Yeah, I think um, every context is different, huh? Like in South Africa, you know, most of that population arguably is, you know, it's managed. Other than the Kruger National Park and essentially what it bleeds into Mozambique um, and parts of Zimbabwe, you know, most of the reserves, for instance, in South Africa are largely reserves that are, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100,000 acres, and most of them are fenced, electrified, people are kept out. You know, I, I think that um, you go to other places like Zambia, you go to places like Botswana, you go to places like um, parts of, you know, arguably even Uganda, uh, where you have wild lions, um, you know, wild and in inverted commas. You know, everything's, you know, there's, there's so few wilderness areas left. You know, it's just it's it's shocking how much wilderness we've lost over the last even even the last two decades. You know, so um, it's a very good question, Peter. And um, you know, I I just think more the, the real question should be about how we can maintain some kind of relative level of genetic diversity between those different lion populations and mm-hmm. moving individuals, swapping them out to make sure that those bloodlines continue. I think that's the kind of key from from management. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just had a, a, another question from Liz. Um, she wanted to know with tree climbing lines in particular, are they super territorial over like specific trees or specific like areas? Yeah, yeah, they're exactly the same. So it'll just be literally like um, what trees are located in their territory. You know, that's, that's the only thing that really changes. But um, they're not, they're not, I mean, obviously they're just, they're, they're just more territorial, just like any other line. It's, um, but they're not territorial. Though trees no it's just more generally they'll they'll just be territorial over any area that happens to be next to a pride um but yeah it's just literally the it's just specifically whatever's found in their in their territory um yeah so they, they are to answer the question they are territorial of the broader area not any specific tree no worries um and did, did you want to ask the last question gabe no go for it very hard-hitting question from jackie to finish up <laughs> Probably the hardest one of the uh, entire entire episode. But um, she said the question that she thinks everyone's dying to know is how do you get your hair to have such volume? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the volume is probably going to uh, going to decrease as I get older. Um, I'm 33 at the time now, and I think it's already like decreased by half. But um, no, I just uh, I don't I don't actually wash it that often when I'm in the field and that's sort of it actually it's actually better because I don't have to brush the thing back or tie it up half the time <laughs> I'll just ask one one last question if you want a one takeaway message or just 
one message about lion conservation in general in a in a couple of sentences what would it be um i guess i guess maybe just uh, in terms of people wanting to help pick a you know charity to donate lion conservation to or whatever uh, i would say the biggest thing there is to just spend 10 minutes just betting you know that top three list of whoever it is that you're thinking of giving money to you know uh, i would say focus on ngos or focus on you know uh, charities that are you know, explicitly state that the money goes to the field that have tangible on the ground impact that they can show through the impact reports, through their uh, various scientific channels, um, and and try and look for smaller grassroots projects. I, I I always urge people, you know, you know, try and try and give to the little dogs, the underdogs, you know, the ones that are fighting hard to make a difference in their respective sites because it's the money is few and far between. Yeah. Do you do you have any shout outs or any groups in particular that you would recommend for donations or anything like that? Um uh, yeah, sure. So like Zambian Carnival Program is always one that I say. They did bloody good work there with Conservation South Luongo. They work hand in hand. Yes, they, you know, they're really good. I would say uh, the Nyasa Lion Project, Colleen Big and her team, that's a really good one. And you know, they've got you know 15, 20 year track record. That's really good. That's in Nyasa and Mozambique. Yeah, I'd say in Botswana and that Zimbabwe system, I'd say the Satib Conservation Trust, they're really good with the wanky scorpion anti-poaching unit. You know, anyone who's doing really good sort of, you know, law enforcement that's working in, in tandem with human communities to stem wildlife conflict with, with, with farmers um, and doing, you know, science, evidence-based conservation, you know, it's like brilliant. Awesome. Well, thank you. So Alex gave us a bunch of great tips for getting into conservation and filmmaking. And so we decided to summarize them into a list for you here. So the first one that he had was make sure you can get yourself out and do some field work. There's so little attention given to field biology. I really think that that's what pushes the mantle forward. I, I just, I don't believe in these desk-based analyses for the most part because they can never really give you the intimacy of really understanding your your species um so i think i think yeah i think, I think field biologists are becoming an endangered species in of, in of themselves yeah alex's second tip is to figure out what you want to do by volunteering uh i think that's really gabriel the the key i think in trying to really place your finger on what you want to do in your life once you graduate is spending some time volunteering at places. I don't care if that's your local radio station or doing a camera internship to a you know, wildlife cameraman or a, a pet shop, whatever it is, like, you know, just kind of grinding your teeth sometimes in an unpaid internship while you're young. Alex's third tip is specifically for science and it's get in touch with as many existing field leaders as you can. And he says the best way to do this is to find them on Google Scholar. The takeaway message for the young people that are wanting to get involved in lion conservation, conservation of anything more broadly, I would just ask myself, do you want to do research? Do you want to do science? And if that's the case and you want to pick a species, I don't care if it's macaws or elephants or lions, make sure to get in touch with as many existing field project leaders, you know, and the, the, the ironic way to do that is actually just go into Google Scholar, type in a species, you know, a scientific name or even just a common name, 
into Google Scholar, you'll see the same names over and over. You know, those are the sort of most prominent people in the field. Contact five, six, seven of them. See if they've got openings in terms of research questions or if you can do masters or PhD with them. Alex's fourth tip is specifically for filmmaking. For film, he says, try and find a film internship. With the filmmaking side of things, I would say try and get an internship somewhere. The good thing is there are a lot of big wildlife production houses now that are outsourcing to Netflix, to Apple TV, to Disney. You know, if you can get an assistant gig as a cameraman, as a producer, a field producer, an accountant, that's the way to do that. And Alex's final tip is spam email everybody you can. If you can meet them face to face, you're golden. You've got to bomb as many applications or as many emails to as many different people uh, as possible and kind of hope for the best in terms of um, getting those kind of opportunities. Um, um, the more the, the more you network, the better. And um, yeah, just uh, get in front of people. <laughs> get in front of people uh, physically. Uh, we just wanted to say again, a massive thank you to Alex for finding the time to talk to us, especially while he's traveling from country to country. And also a huge congratulations to him because literally, I think it's been two days after we recorded this, he got engaged. That's just fantastic. And so, yeah. And if you're interested in learning more about Alex and or train climbing lions or big cats, uh, check out his documentary on Disney+. Plus. It's called Tree Climbing Lines. Um, and the second one's coming out soon to Nat Geo Wild. And if you're interested in getting a bit more advice on how to get into conservation science or filming, uh, his website has a super helpful page about starting your career in those fields. Our theme music is by Carl Morley. Our website is by my brother Angus. And Jake Barnes let me borrow his audio equipment. So a big thank you to all of them. And most of all, thanks to you for supporting us by listening. Honestly, we really appreciate it. If you're interested, join into our next episode next week. We're zooming our way over to New Zealand to get biodiversity ranger Dennis Stojanovic to give us a rundown on what it's like protecting small flightless kiwis in the mountains of Middle Earth. Uh, oh, yeah, there is a bird known as the Colossus. Is it huge? I'm, I'm, I haven't actually met the Colossus. I think she's currently missing. I think it's a she. And uh, I think I think she had two two of her partners have both been killed by, we think, Kiwi to Kiwi violence. So um, there is this sort of rumor that she killed both her partners. Anyway, but <laughs> anyway, um, they, they, they're pretty powerful. Like uh, they've got pretty chunky legs. In the meantime, if you haven't heard our first episode with Dr. Daniela Texera on the tiny population of glossy black cockatoos on Kangaroo Island, it's also available now. If, if you've heard this episode and somehow haven't heard that one, it should be the one just above this one on whatever podcast app you use. If you've listened to it, that means you've heard at least two of our episodes. So thank you for sticking with us while we fumble our way around a microphone. We said it last episode, but we'll say it again because it really is important. If there's any way to review or follow or whatever this podcast, wherever you're listening to it, it makes a huge difference if you can do any of those things. But yeah, we're back next week. Talk then.